Hey guys, it's Aaron. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. This is the third episode that we recorded before anything was publicly released. How about that, guys? This is our initial public offering. Already talking the lingo. Like a goddamn shark. This episode features Dave Cutneau, owner of Reservoir Distillery. He went from Wall Street to whiskey. Doesn't sound too bad to me. So we'll ask him all about that journey. And we welcome any comments and suggestions or questions that you may have. We got an email now, guys. Monkeybizshow at gmail.com. B-I-Z. Monkeybizshow at gmail.com. When we're current in February 2021, which is already here, we'll address your questions and comments if any come in. Looking forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Monkey Business Show. I'm Aaron Hodges along with Eric Salzman and Richie Bennett. We're talking all things financial and there is a lot to talk about. How are we doing, gentlemen? Feeling good? Feeling great. How are you doing? Not as good as you look today, Richie. You got spiffed up today. I think you're excited about our guest that we're bringing in here a little bit. Dave Before you went on the air, I, we were talking to our guest. I did cut off my mullet for the shows. I didn't know that you're trying to fit in to the Florida uh, surroundings. Well, I, I, I did not give up my pickup truck with the gun rack. That's not happening. <laughs> well, I can't ignore that I am debuting a mustache here today, too. So that is right. that's something, too. I thought that was dirt. A lot of stuff going on here. I open up Twitter today, and the president says there's a important news conference today at noon with a uh, with the lawyers with a clear path to victory. So there's still that. Oh, and then I open up Twitter again and look at what's trending, and it's maybe the most famous financial commentator that I know of, Jim Cramer. He's trending. I have a clip for you guys. Maybe you haven't even seen this yet, but uh, let's see if you can hear this. I thought he was Da Vinci. He's both. He's both. And David, the two White House, look, I just want to tell you. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. What? No, I'm just saying that it's going to be a fight to the end. That's what the two White House comments okay. There will not be, there will, there, it's not going to be the Naval Observatory in the White House. Please, people who think, I'm just saying, the battle's not over. The election's not over. For really one not, man. At least there's one For person who continues the battle. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jimmy Giuliani and then maybe Barr. Yeah. Couple of other people. Then there's the U.S. Army, which I think is going to take the side of, of Biden. Oh, the hundred and first. All right, here we go. Uh, hey, John Malone, he's a great patriot. Pretty good segue there, out of there, I guess. Wait, the was, that, was that Kramer saying the market was, other than the army, was going to take over? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I, the market doesn't care less about the, the election's over. The market is not even, you know, it's 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 in the past now. Um, you know, the big thing is. We've come in two two Mondays in a row, back to back, of just this great news about you know first um, uh, Pfizer with their um, with their vaccine, um, and then the next week, next Monday, we came in with Moderna, and they had another you know fantastic clinical trials. Um, Pfizer came back yesterday and said that actually they at first point said ninety percent ninety percent positive, and then. They've made it to um, 95% yesterday, their final results. So that is awesome news. The market has been reacting to that. 
But, you know, when you think about what's happening on the, right now on the ground, I mean, we're just, we're just, it, it's devastation. It's just, you know, right now we're going to have to deal with the next two or three months of just, you know, horror. But the market is looking past, you know, is looking past it. And I was thinking about this, like the way I felt when this Pfizer, when the, when the Pfizer announcement came out two weeks ago, I felt like what it must have felt like if you were here during World War II and, you know, the boys landed in Normandy and we just like, we're going to take it to the Hun now in this war, you know, like we we're there and now we're just going to, it's going to take a while, but we're going to battle our way through and, and win this war. And that's how kind of I felt. The only issue is that using the World War II example and then thinking about this virus is, you know, World War II, the only nation left standing was us, right? Because we were the only nation that didn't have a war fought on its soil. Every other nation was had the, the crap knocked out of it. This, this virus is like a war. The president has said it, everyone. So even after the, when we get the, when we get the vaccine, when we reach a point, hopefully, where we hit some of the level of normalcy at the end of 2021, there's going to be devastation, devastation of markets, devastation of businesses, devastation of people's finances, you know, massive government debt because we're going to, you know, hopefully we're going to get and start spending more money. So, I think that the stock market right now, and Richie very uh, um, adeptly put it, that the stock market really looks at nine months from now, you know, eight, you know, two quarters, three quarters from now, and that's what the market's looking at. Yeah, I think it's being a little too optimistic on even when this thing is under control, what the economy and what the global economy and the U.S. economy is going to look like. So that's my view. I think that the markets are really getting. A little too frothy, a little too far ahead of themselves. But good news on the on the uh, on the vaccine front. Richie, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the way I've been positioning myself, as we've been talking about in previous shows, is uh, I definitely had a feeling toward leaning toward things are going to come back. So value versus growth, you hear that a lot. Growth would be like these big tech stocks that have been flying and flying and all our friends at Robin Hood and all these other places are buying them and they're getting rich and they're like, this is easy money and this is fun and this is great. And, you know, you have some real companies that are like down in the dumps still, like energy companies, financials, everybody like that still makes money, but people don't see the growth or the reason to buy these things again. So when the vaccine, the two vaccine days happened, as Eric talked about, you saw a huge rotation away from these tech stocks and into a lot of these energy companies and the companies that were all shut down, airlines, cruises, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So last week we had talked about uh, United Rentals, URI is a stock that would do very well in uh comeback situation or infrastructure bill or something like that. And lo and behold, that happened. We went against Tesla, which everybody laughed at. And uh, that was looking real good, real good, until they came out and said the S&P 500 has accepted them into their little club of 500 people, 500 companies, and the stock goes up overnight 25%. So Richie's short went to the how does that get determined who gets accepted into the S&P? They have to vote on it. Uh, you have to have profitability in, in at least three quarters in a row, which yeah. they got. But they were disappointed. It was uh, just last quarter they thought they were going to get in and it didn't happen. So I was kind of t- taken off guard by that. I didn't even know they were still looking at adding companies this year, but they did. But Eric and I were talking about it. 
And just because it gets into the S&P 500 one day doesn't mean the company's doing any better. You know what I mean? Like, like people just, when, when you have a, a bunch of funds, let's say, big funds, like Vanguard has a huge one, Fidelity, Schwab, when they have S&P 500 funds, these are funds that are index funds, they have to buy all the stocks or most of the stocks in that index. So what happens when Tesla gets announced that it's going in, guess what? Everybody's piling in because they have to. Not necessarily because they want to, but they have to. So now in the famous scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone and Sonny Corleone are talking. This wouldn't be a about, monkey business episode if you're not quoting The Godfather. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they both talk and the topic comes up now it's personal, not business. So I thought about doubling down oh. on my position in Tesla because this is just some stupid idiot reason that it would go up. And I sat back and I was like, that's personal, not business. Leave it alone. <laughs> so what happens yesterday is some cat from Morgan Stanley comes out and says, oh, these dudes aren't even a car company anymore. They're making stuff, software out the wazoo, like everything. Oh, my God. They're going to make money everywhere, like Amazon and the cloud. And he's yelling and screaming. Damn thing went up another 10%. Wow. Like wow. 50 points. Boom. This morning, it's up 10 more. And it's like, okay. Good. All right. So Good. Let's, let's, uh, let's just go back a little bit to our lessons for the, um, by the way, I'm going to say that there are Robinhood traders, our, our, our youngsters who are trading, there's a, Bank of America gave them a new name today, which we'll get to in a second. But remember our rules, right? So United Rentals, boom, it's taken off. So does Richie, what is what goes into Richie's decision making? Should he stay in URI or take profits? And conversely, you've got Tesla. You got this. You know, all of a sudden, you know, he was doing great. All of a sudden, the S and P thing happened. Boom, it's up what thirty percent in the last in the last three days. Yeah. What do you do? So you got a loser right now, and you got a winner. Are you still? What is, what what do you think about URI right now? As far as what, so, what would you do? That that day, actually, I have a few other uh, stocks. Uh, Boyd Gaming, for instance, which is a land based, really like locals casino around the country. Right? They have they have a big presence in Vegas, but they're all over the place. But I like them because nobody has to fly to get there if they don't want to. Most of their customers drive, which is fine, and they're open. So that, you know, if anybody's been to, like, the Strip in Las Vegas, you got hotels like the Bellagio and Venetian and all these, like, high-end things, they're having a tougher time because people still won't get on planes. So the day of that Tesla first move, I actually made money in the portfolio because URI went up a ton that day as well. So I was happy, you know, that was a good day considering it could have been a catastrophe. So then it's looking really good until about two o'clock yesterday when our our former hometown mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, also AKA uh, Warren Wilhelm. If people don't know that, that's his real name, Warren Wilhelm. Oh, yeah. He didn't like his dad. He didn't like his dad so he took Wilhelm and shortened it to Bill and then took his mom's maiden name. So Warren Wilhelm, I like to refer to him as. He shut down city schools, right? So that's that. And and gave out the little the little jab that said, and more stuff to come. So that tells me if I'm a restaurant owner in New York City, I might be 
learning how to yeah we're looking at the possibility of lockdowns in some sense all over the country coming up pretty soon right yes so so that trade that it, it, that uri stock was all the way up like way up and all of a sudden it just lost steam now it hadn't it didn't fall out of the bottom you know the bottom didn't fall out of it but but if more of this talk happens I, I'm going to have to reverse my thinking on this thing because it's not, they're not if they're not opening up, these guys aren't making any money. I have specific questions about United Rentals because I think when you mentioned it, I started looking at the stock and I'm like, oh, let's mm. see, let's see what Richie's talking about here because your reasoning made a lot of sense as to why you would buy that stock when you mm. did recommend it. So I fired up the old uh, TD Ameritrade uh, account again and uh, maybe, you know, dip my toes in. Haven't done it yet, but I'm just watching it. I'm watching the stuff. I thought you were going to say you did and bought a new Tesla or something. <laughs> I don't think you did. I don't think you did, and uh, I did, and I, it went up $2 and I cashed out. Yeah, yeah, that's something I would do. But uh, I think it was about 175 180 or something when you had recommended it. As I look at it today, it's about uh, 215 so that's good do you think that it still has a lot of room to grow if things fall the right way i don't think a ton more that's the other thing we like to do is not be greedy right but it's it's got some room it's got some room but again if everything shuts down and and you know i i, I tend to look more and maybe that's the um darker side of me um i tend to, when they look at the stats on like who tests positive who's in the hospital i'm always like who died like, did anyone die? And for a while there, they weren't, right? So, like, people were yapping about hospitalization. I'm like, I got it, but I think they got, got it under control. But over the last couple of days, there's been a lot of deaths. A oh, lot. Yeah. Almost 2,000 yesterday. The, yeah, this has been the trend. And um, last thing on this is that uh, one thing we got to remember, you know, just because pe- when people go into the hospital with this thing, and now, thank God, they're able. You're able to come out of the hospital, even if you go on a ventilator, you can still come out of the hospital. These people's lot. We still don't know what is going to be after. It's like you know, and I hate to keep using the war example, but it's like you know, if you went to Vietnam and you got a certain, you know, if you're wounded a certain way, odds are you were never making it out. You know, you were you were going to die. In Iraq and Afghanistan, plenty of guys. And arms blown. I mean, just terrible, horrible things. But technology has been able to sit, to save their lives. But they're still now walking around prosthetics. They still have terrible head injuries. So there's going to be a whole wave of people that are not going to return to the way that they were before. That's another thing that we're not considering. We're not considering how the quality of their lives, the quality healthcare. It's going to be something that we just don't know about. But on a fun note, Bank of America today, all you uh, all you um, Generation Z uh, investors out there, you have a new name. You are now Zillennials. <laughs> yes, you are now Zillennials and you're being studied. I want to give you a little... Zillennials? Uh, Zillennials, <laughs> majority, <laughs> the majority have a meat restriction of some kind, and many don't drink, and that'll be upsetting to our next guest. They welcome new technology to manage finances from phones to cryptocurrencies, implying banks and asset managers will need to reassess their services. So they like technology. But check this out. 40% of 16 to 18-year-olds would rather interact virtually with friends versus 35% of millennials. So, they, so 40% of, of zillennials 
don't like to meet face to face. They like to they like to chat and do stuff like this. Um, now, this is the one that really upsets me. Eighteen percent of eighteen to twenty four year olds surveyed watch traditional sports regularly each month, compared to twenty one percent who watch esports regularly each month. Yeah, yeah, that's a trend that is mind boggling to me. Yeah, I, when, when that first came up. I somebody brought it to me like they had an idea, and they, these guys had money. Like, they, my son, I'm going to do this whole league and everything. I'm like, I'm going to sit and watch, you know, watch somebody else play a freaking game. You could set lineups on DraftKings for yeah. Madden football games. It's crazy. I'm going to play right. Joe Shit the Ragman from Wisconsin because he's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pounding the button. <laughs> it's insane, man. It's insane. All so, right. give us one or two stocks that you're looking at right now. Looking at going against Twitter, the old Twitter machine. I think, you know, that that also could be personal and not business. But I think they have some issues around competition. Like, I think, like, Facebook and those guys are coming around trying to create certain things. Now, Twitter came out and tried. They did some sort of Instagram type thing where they, they created a th- um, message Board and fleets, video board where fleets it's when things go away for tw- after twenty four hours. Yes, which is interesting. But I, I do think this guy's in trouble on both sides. Like Dorsey and his attitude. Like both. This is like a bipartisan thing where they think that he's really censoring stuff. They, and plus, they want his money, so they can tax the hell out of him or force him to like sell you know half of the business or something like that. So I'm looking against. I'm looking against that one. There's an energy stock though that's gotten the hell beat out of it. Calon Petroleum, CPE, Charlie Peter Edward, that I'm looking to buy. It's kind of, a, you know, the same energy story. Energy prices are still down. Um, but this thing has gotten a hell beat out of it. It kind of stopped at around five and started moving back up again. I tend to look at these charts. It's around, uh, I think it's around eight today. And they make, a, they make money. They, make, they still make money despite oil prices being where they are. And they've been able to cut back on drilling, cut costs. And I think there's there's a good chance, certainly within the energy sector, also the financial sector that we've seen this week. I'll give a little plug to my old boss. You can see consolidation, meaning mergers. So like a company that like CPE that I just talked about five years ago, four years ago, they were like big and mighty. Now they're in Shitsville. So some bigger guy might come along and be like, oh, hey, they're still making dough. Maybe we'll merge with them. We'll buy them out. You know, we'll buy them out. And it happened in the banking sector with my first boss, Bill Demchek, is the president and CEO of PNC, which is Pittsburgh National Corporation. And they're a big bank, and now they're a bigger bank because they bought the Spanish bank, BBVA's U.S. operations. And now they're the fifth biggest bank in the country for under assets. So same idea. He was looking around for something. And this thing got cheap enough and, you know, Europe's a shit show, too. So maybe these guys just wanted to get out and focus on their homeland of Spain. So they sell. So I look for trends like that in that in those, especially in those two sectors. All right. All right. I want to bring in our guest. A little introduction. So as we said in the first show, you know, Richie and I, our Wall Street careers were interrupted a little bit in 2008. And, um, you know, we just we, we, we were given lemons and we made lemonade. Well, this guy, our dear friend, Dave Cutno, he was given lemons and he made whiskey. <laughs> I, I parlayed them into whiskey, Eric. Parlayed. <laughs> parlayed. Parlayed them into whiskey. So Dave Cutno is co-founder of Reservoir Distilleries, along with Jay Carpenter, his uh, 
childhood friend, Dave, right? Going back to second grade, uh, he invited me to his birthday party by mistake. And as a lesson on when you show up to a party, always bring a good gift. I brought a Y-Wing fighter, so I'm dating myself a little bit. It's back Star Wars era. Uh, it was the best gift he got, and uh, we've been best friends ever since. Yes, and Jay has an interesting nickname, which you can either reveal or not reveal. Um, <laughs> but think about this. So this guy, and Dave's going to tell us the story. Because here's a guy, and now, so Dave, tell me if I'm right on this. So you come out of Virginia Tech. Mm. You're a biologist? Um. I, I was an electrical engineer, but I worked um, doing uh, chemical and biological warfare for the Navy. Yes. So, so Dave first made weapons of mass destruction for the Navy. Mm. <laughs> then he made financial weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> Again, is, par- parlayed. <laughs> that is hedge fund. Career path. <laughs> now, here we are. We're, now he's making an honest living selling whiskey. So, Dave, please tell us, give us the story of Reservoir. So, you know, um, and I'm sure you guys have probably talked about the era, you know, where um, we knew one another on Wall Street and uh, what kind of spit us out into the world, the real world, if you will. You know, back in 08, um, at that point in time in my career, uh, you know, you've, you've, You've made some lemonade, you've made, taken, taken lemons and made some lemonade with what's going on in Wall Street. And uh, my kids were getting into kindergarten age and, um, you know, living in New York City. Uh, I don't know if anybody's you know familiar with what it's like to especially these kids that are doing Robin Hood. You know what college costs now. That is what preschool costs in Manhattan. And unless you are uh, working a real Wall Street job, it just doesn't make sense. So um, I looked at I grew up in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And so I was looking for uh, something to do, and um, I came across, I was always a bourbon file. Um, Eric can attest to that, as Richie can in, in New York, lots of good bourbon there. Um, so I discovered that there was a, and this is an interesting thing because it came up on Bloomberg, uh, Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's home, was rebuilding a distillery that was on the property of uh, Mount Vernon. And it was the largest distillery in colonial times, produced a tremendous amount of liquor that supported the entire East Coast. And so they were rebuilding this thing. And they had a Chinese delegation coming because it was going to be the beginning of the whiskey trail that would start in Virginia, move through Kentucky, uh, go to all these different distilleries. And they had a really neat stat on Bloomberg. And it said that if the Chinese market came online, it would deplete U.S. bourbon reserves in about a year. Okay, so think about that. What are bourbon reserves? Have you ever even thought that there's such a thing? So it takes time to make whiskey. You got to fill up a barrel and then you got to store it and it's going to sit there and then it becomes whiskey after a certain amount of time. If you open up a massive market where suddenly everybody comes in, you're going to run out of spirits very, very quickly. Do we have a strategic reserve of bourbon? (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) It's in Dave's basement. (laughs) In our industry, it's called allocation. Right. And the goal is always you're making bourbon and you're and it's an interesting play because you are looking way out into the future. Like I'm making something now that's going to take six, eight, ten years to be ready. And what's the market going to be like then? Richie's talking about two, three quarters away. Right. And I'm making like six, eight, ten years. That kids is what's called uh, duration and a yield curve can be built off of that. So you start to see like, okay, what's my risk all the way out there? Um, 
So, you know, you're sitting there going like, we're going to build strategic stockpiles of this in anticipation, but you have some buffer room in your model. Well, hearing this as a young man on Wall Street who is going through the period of 06, 07, 08 um, and has children that are getting to age, I, I sit there and a the light bulb goes off and I go, wow, this is a market where supply demand is in my favor. You're making something that does not go bad. It's not a widget. It's not a fad. And if it sits on the shelf longer, it only gets more valuable. Yeah. This seems like a good business to be in. And this was long, this was long enough ago that um, craft wasn't even a, a term yet. It was micro distillers is what we were called. And remind anybody, remind the zillennials that in 2009, right? I mean, the amount of the craft or, you know, the... the, the All right. I'm going to throw some data. I'm a data hound, like Richie. Eric always by the seat of his pants. He never knows what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, so uh, here's a number to chew on. Back then, when I was in New York, I came across a bottle of whiskey in a bodega on um, 73rd and Broadway, like right where it kind of splits off right there. Uh, it worked. Yeah, exactly. Right where I work. And uh, shocker, I was in a bodega. And um, so I came across across a bottle and, you know, I knew whiskey and um, this was a bottle of bourbon that was made in upstate New York. And I was like, oh, that's interesting because you don't really see anybody outside of Kentucky. And here's the bar bet. Everybody says, you know, bourbon can only be made in Kentucky. Not true. You could always win a bet by saying, there is an old bottling called Virginia Gentleman made by Bowman's Distillery in Virginia. And Bowman's was the oldest continuously owned family distillery in the country up until Sazerac bought them back in 0102. So uh, bourbon has always been made in Virginia. In fact, it's where the first bottle of bourbon was ever made at Berkeley Plantation. Uh, George Thorpe was the gentleman who made that as a preacher, which is a whole other story. But either way, I found these guys and um, it was so long ago that I actually wrote them a letter and said, hey, I'm thinking about moving out of New York back down to Virginia and opening a whiskey distillery. Can I come and work for free? And they said, free work? Yeah, come on. <laughs> and um, so I went up there and I met them and we liked each other. And I came up and I worked for about nine months uh, learning the functional reality of operating a distillery. And it was, it was amazing because guys like this, just having somebody else start helped raise awareness that you didn't have to go to Kentucky to get your bourbon. And um, they helped me with, you know, the, the, the processes, the compliance, uh, getting with the feds and getting the license done and all these things. And um, as a result, I got um, my distillery set up in Richmond and uh, became the third person outside of Kentucky making bourbon. And that's a pretty impressive number these days because, you know, when you look at back then, I think in total, and we're counting vodkas, gins, rum, whiskey, whatever, there was under 200 distilleries in the entire country then. And now we're pushing about 3,000. And then um, also in Virginia, when we came in, I think we were number four or five in the state and uh we are at 81 now wow licensed um we actually have more distilleries in virginia than we have in kentucky that are licensed pretty pretty interesting little set of uh, data there dave can i interrupt because i want i want everybody to know this that um the effort that 
you put in to build this thing, you had Jay to build this thing was yeah. just Herculean. Like, like, you know, I don't want people to have the idea that they went into the woods and built their, you know, one of those, you know distillers and running from the rep from the revenue man. Yeah. Uh, it, what's interesting is I get asked to talk more about the business aspect, which, cause I started a business in 08, which is, you know, everything was in the shitter and then slowly been building it because making, making whiskey from scratch. And here's a, a very big differentiation. We only sell stuff that we make. Most whiskeys that you see on the shelf, people didn't make them, right? Most of what you see comes from about four or five distilleries, big ones in Kentucky. And then there's a lot of stuff that comes from what's called MGP, which is a large distillery in Indiana, and it's called sourcing. Um, and it's where you can buy something that's already been made in age, and then you just throw it in a different bottle, label it, and then you go, oh, look, here's mom's old recipe. Uh, we are a rare example in craft where we built it ourselves, and develop, and that takes a lot of time. Trading on Wall Street is a—it's one of the few things where it's a true meritocracy. It's a eat what you kill. You have to understand risk. You take positions. It's a high stress. You know these guys laugh about it, but you know uh, Eric's lack of hair. Richie, I'm pretty sure is dying his hair at this point. Uh, Definitely a hair piece. I'm only 25, and look at me. <laughs> um, it's it's hard, and it's it's the closest thing to entrepreneurial, right? If you're not already starting your own business, so entrepreneurship, which is purely what the stuff was, is um, it's hard, and you have to love what it is that you're doing, and it takes a lot of effort. You sleep, eat, and breathe it, and in this case, also drink it as well. Um, our mantra all along was really simple. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to make the best thing that we can. Now we're going to go high quality so that we're not competing with like the beam sum Tories of the world who have very, very sharp elbows. They don't like competition, you know, and it's a full contact sport that we're playing in here. Um, you know, make the best thing that you can make and hopefully it'll take care of itself, right? So that we don't have to do the hard sale. And that doesn't mean that you don't still don't have to work and sell and navigate all the intricacies of like what this business is. But, um, in the end, if it doesn't work out, Jay and I always cop to like, I will never have to buy a bottle of bourbon again because we're going to have a lot out of it. It's going to be good. Too. <laughs> good point. Um, so, you know, it, it is, uh, it's not something that just happens. You have to have to work really hard at it. And there's uh, Jay, and, and like anything else. There's a few, only a few people that actually end up making it. So a lot of people like to ask like of these entrepreneurs the second time around, if you count wall street as, the first time around for you, mm -hmm. um, you know, what qualities did you gain that helped you in your second role? What I always like to do is say, did anything really fuck you up that you learned on wall street that you thought was going to work in the old distillery business? And it didn't. <laughs> um, I, all right. Really great question. Two things there. Uh, like my, my handle nickname you know, just my hashtag on social and, and, and believe me, you guys, if you want to learn about whiskey, follow reservoir Dave on Instagram. Um, it's, it's all about what I drink, why, what I'm doing and how that feeds back into our process at reservoir and how we make and do stuff here. Um, because there's a much wider world. You don't just drink your own stuff. You drink all sorts of things to get ideas. But, um, my uh, hashtag is risky whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the, the thing about, uh, trading is what you what you learn is that it's risk, and um, and anybody that really wants to learn about risk, there's a great book called Against the Gods, 
is probably one of the more influential books I've read. It's, it's kind of a light history on uh, risk-taking and um, probabilistic theory. And it's all about what you're doing and calculating your odds of success on anything. And that factors into everything that we do here. But, you know, well, one, one of the biggest things that was um, ended up being uh, probably a, a negative from my experience on Wall Street is um, sometimes you can know a little bit too much. And when you know too much, it's not that you're cynical. It's you can kind of get what you factor out is that X factor and in that per people X factor. The paralysis by analysis. Yeah, kind of. It's uh, and I was talking to Eric about this earlier. Um, I don't know. Eric, do you want me to get into how I view the cap structure and where equity sit? Oh, boy. You can get into whatever you want, Dave. Okay, so this is what I learned from, and this is a little anecdote from 08. Um, you know, I was, I was a uh, 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 agency derivative, mortgage derivative trader and a non-agency credit trader and um, was portfolio manager at a pretty sizable hedge fund in that space. Um, and uh, we're going into... This is in 2007, and um, the uh, special purpose vehicles had been coming back on balance sheet, and tier three pricing was in vogue, and uh, people were trying to figure out what was happening, and and uh, ABX was moving, and um, uh, translate that into total shit show. Yeah, total total shit show. Everybody's like what the fuck is happening and trying to get a handle on it. You know, all these movies about like, Oh, two guys knew what was happening and they bet on <laughs> bullshit. Everybody knew, especially the guys that were making them and trading them. They just were trying to figure out how do we unwind this? And by the way, guys don't yell about it because it's going to screw it up. And so everybody's sitting there trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, Lehman brothers is the first bank and broker to do an earnings call. And I'm sure both you guys remember listening to this. And I forget the CEO's name that was CEO at the time. Dick Dick Right. Yeah. Um, And he's on there talking and he's talking about their position. And so they're the first ones going out. And so they rolled the dice and said, yeah, you know, we're just going to, you know, play possum. We're fine. It's okay. You know, uh, I had a pretty good handle on what their position was and knew they were fucked. <laughs> and um, the guy came on and he literally lied about what their position was. And I know that's kind of a strong accusation. I certainly don't want to get in any kind of legal issues here, but my perspective as a trader sitting there was like, this guy's not giving me exactly what the truth is as to what their position is. Um, that made me realize that an equity valuation, which is largely driven by earnings reports and calls, Right. If you're talking about stable company that's earning money, like what Rishi's talking about, um, is only as good as the information that the board and C-level C suite is going to give you. And if you think about stocks, stocks are equities. Okay, equity, if you look at a cap structure from AAA credit down through um, junk debt and, and then down into the equity piece, the equity piece is the bottom of the stack. That is also what we would refer to as the residual and it's called the residual because cash flow comes in and goes at the top of the stack and losses come into the bottom of the stack. If you look at a corporate piece. So an equity is the first loss piece. So when a company has problems, 
that's where the losses go. And this is why you see stock prices whip so quickly. They can go up a lot and they go down because you take a lot of risk when you buy that and the return has to be higher to compensate for the amount of risk you're taking. All right, we're back to risky whiskey. Um, if I was to buy triple A's, they don't move as much. And I'm also getting paid a lot less for them. Now, we can, we can also, you can probably do a whole segment on how triple A's were at par and then became at $3. And then we made a lot of money trading those things. Um, that's a lot of fun trading. But the take home from that is, is that it's not that it's uh, paralysis by analysis. It's, um, it's a fundamental trust in what it is that somebody's saying. And this is where the people factor comes in. You have to know the board, who the people are, what their motivations are. Can you trust them? You know, are they saying and doing, you know, what's appropriate for the investor? And that's why we have all these SEC rules around everything to make sure that guys do that. But every now and then you'll find people that don't. Um, my take home from that was I don't really, especially in that period of time, I didn't know who was telling the truth and who wasn't. So I got out of stocks um, in that situation. Um, you can you can have if you're really good and you know your analysis and you got balls of steel, you can trade that stuff and you can do really well. And that's, that's Richie. Richie's great at that. Um, but my style is very much more of a, um, what can I really control and how much risk can I reduce? Do I like risk? Yes. But I also like to control it. Yeah. And you can control it through data analysis. You can control it through understanding that market. You can control it through understanding the motivations of the people that are doing it. And those are all different analysis techniques that you can actually put into use when you're doing uh, any kind of a uh, relative value analysis or growth or, you know, any of those different uh, momentum trading techniques. Yeah. I relate to that big time being able to control the risk, but the risk that you're taking now is getting very, very creative with some of your bourbons. Because I'm looking at ReservoirDistillery.com and Holland's Milkman has my attention. That, that's, that's called a diversification play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it all comes in. Um, yeah, if you, if you all uh, let me, I'll talk a little bit about our stack and how it came up. So we started off making 100% corn, 100% wheat, and 100% rye. In the beginning, we didn't even tell people that we did that because it was so different from what everybody else did in the market, right? I'm just really different that we're like, mm, let's not tell anybody because that's just too weird. And back then, people weren't as open about trying different things. And so um, I tried, I tried like them all in the beginning. Here's what's neat. It took me about eight years to figure this out. And the reason why it took me so long was not because I'm not as smart as I like to think I am. Uh, uh, it's, it's that nobody else in the country was doing this. And I took a bartender down in Florida when I was doing a little sales swing down through there. Uh, and he said, Hey, how do you drink this? And I thought he, you know, he, he meant like, Oh, it was on ice or, you know, uh, with a little bit of water. And I, I said, oh, I like to throw a little uh, weed on top of the rye because it rounds out the sharp edges of the rye and gives it a nice long tail. And he was like, oh, you mean you can vat this in a glass and recreate any mash bill that you want? And it's like, bing, light bulb goes off. And I'm like, holy, you know, like, we, can, we can make anything now. So those three, when you ratio them, if you blend them together in 1% increments, there are 23 commas in that number of combinations. I can make anything you want. And then if I start messing with the ages of each individual one, like I got my wheat's a little bit older, my corn's in the middle, my rye's a little bit younger. Now it's like a three factorial on top of that. It's insane, the different things. So from there, it exploded a ton of uh, creativity. Yeah, Eric. 
What's the uh, God? What's that delicious one you made? It was uh, it was like craft beer. It was beer and <laughs> so you're, there's there's two. It didn't last very long in my house. Are, are you talking about the one where he took an IPA and distilled yeah, like yeah, whiskey yeah. out of it? Yeah, that was for we took a local. So we're all about collaborations and, and working with other people because that's what really drives creativity and also increases the network. It's fun. We got tons of great collaborations all over the world. We're doing one with a cognac producer called Francois Voyer in France. These beer guys that Eric's talking about, we just took spent beer that they had and um, we distilled it like we were making whiskey and it came out almost like if you made a gin with a whiskey technique and then Eric's got sitting on his desk, um, uh, a really nice bottle that, um, and this is a cool story. It's called Hound's ghost. Uh, it's one- notice, the, notice the level there. Almost, yeah. almost gone. You got to re up. <laughs> that one was, um, we had a, uh, the largest whiskey bar in Virginia came in and had an old 1960s bottle of whiskey. And, uh, they said, you know, Hey, we, we finished this. Can we, um, you know, can we come in and see if we can't recreate it? And we said, sure. I don't know what that tastes like, but, you know, come on in. And so Matt came in and then he tasted through verticals and horizontals of barrels and um, came up with a blend that was 70 corn, 15 wheat, 15 rye. Pretty close approximation to the 1960s bottle. But we didn't have was barley. And so what we, there happened to be, uh, a master brewer from the brewery down the street in the house when we were talking about this. And he said, Hey, I've got a stout beer cask that we're getting ready to dump. Why don't we put it in there? And this is called in our world, what we call finishing. And there's enough beer inside the wood and the whiskey goes in and it co-mingles with that. And then it eventually melts when you leave it long enough and you get a barley note into it. And that's what Holland's ghost is that Eric has. And that one has become renowned for, um, it's exactly what a 1960s bourbon tastes like. This is a, so this is a this is 107 proof. Yes, and I, I, I drop a little water in there. Dave actually taught me earlier how to proof it proof it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like I mean, you just sit and sip this stuff. And now the dangerous thing is it's 107 proof. Mm-hmm. So especially here in Texas, when you're sitting outside in the 100 degree heat with your fan going and, you know, music blaring, and you start getting into Mr. Holland's ghost, it's pretty binary. Like, one minute you're fine, the next minute you're like, oh, <laughs> Dave has a lot of shortcomings, um, but... Mainly vertically, I'm just not that proud. We are so, we're just so proud of Dave. Like, I mean, the first time that we ever tasted the three originals, the bourbon, the wheat, and the rye, which is like, just blown away. And I remember now that back then your problem was making enough of it, right? Like you, you make great whiskey, but how do I, you know, how do you get the scale? And so all the things that they did off of those three originals and just making this. So what do you think, Dave, to change it a little bit? Because I'm, we were looking at some of the stocks of the large spirits companies. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I noticed like Constellation is from the lows in March is more than doubled, I believe. Mm-hmm. Where like brown form like some of the other guys they've come back but like what except for something like March like why should whiskey stocks ever go down first of all that's that's a, that's a problem with me well how about this I'll ask you a question that'll it'll like kind of lead into that um, so everybody experienced some form of the lockdown you know when we first had that one and there's also a question we might be going back in so um, first question what were you guys drinking during that period of time everything. 
Okay. I I switched up a little because one of my fine uh, institutions of sneakiness uh, never locked down. Mm-hmm. So they what they did, and there'll be future sponsors of this program, I'm sure. <laughs> um, what they did was they put the gates down. They have an outdoor tiki bar, but they closed that. Put the gates down, but they could serve to-go food. And the governor came up with the bright idea that you can also serve to-go liquor. Mm-hmm. So what people started doing was coming and saying, I'll take twenty order an order of 20 wings and fries, and why don't you put that wing order in in about two hours? Yeah. And now, uh, give me the plastic cups, please. Yeah. So what I would joke about with people was, for me, the lockdown – for a while, didn't really materialize because the only thing you had to do was bring your own chair yeah. and social distance. And, you know, you had a mask. Unlike a lot of the people in this country, Florida was not completely locked down. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely locked down in the three south counties, Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach. Palm Beach is where I am. So, like most of you who had to go through all this stuff, so did we. So what I... The long answer to that question. So I was doing vodkas, usually, vodka and club. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I would switch. I'd go for a few at the the place, and then I'd come home and do lockdown, you know, as I was supposed to do. This is all in one day. This is all in one day. Yeah, so this is these are be my days, and then I hit the ground. Starting at nine a.m. <laughs> Whenever they open, and and then I hit the ground. But I heard of people like some of these places never closed. And they would just put picnic benches if they had if they had land. So people were like rolling into these places with the you know half the time they had their own stuff. But I I think I think the way I saw it, the hard stuff definitely went down much more than give me a Bud Light. Yeah. Right. I yeah, I knew I had X amount of time and supply because here in Texas, yeah, Texas too, we we open bars probably too early and stuff, and we also have takeaways. You can go to the Mexican restaurant, you can order when you're picking up your food, they'll make you can make any mixed drink and they'll they'll bring it out for you. But yeah, I was going for high alcohol content at that point because I wasn't gonna waste, you know I wasn't gonna waste it on a beer. And and the other thing was hoarding. Like if, if when the liquor stores opened uh, fine, you know, because ours were closed. As soon as they opened, we're like, let's get, let's buy, you know, let's buy a case before they shut it all down again. Yeah. So, 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 Dave, did you see that in your business? That have sales gone crazy? Okay. So, and and again, you know, to the point of like, oh, some publicly traded companies, and like, why are they down? You know, when you hear like, oh, your liquor stores are are crushing it. Um, for example, Virginia, it's a state control. We have Virginia ABC, and, and you have to go to them in order to buy liquor. So um, they're up like 30, 40% year over year, like massive. Okay. Um, but that's because they're just selling out. Now, um, when we're kind of eh, flat year over year, so which is actually pretty good for a craft band. And the reason is, is because when people are going out and they're like, they don't want to go to a store in the first place. Um, and when they do go to a store, some of the stores are locked where they just, you come to the door and they're like, tell us what you want. So somebody comes up and goes, Hey, I want a bourbon to go. Here's a handle of Jack Daniels. Right. And so people would come, they would go up in format 
because they want to get as much as they can in one sitting, right? And just so they don't have to keep going back and forth. Um, and then it's just what it happens to be readily available. Like what are the cap ends, you know, all the all these massive pieces. So it tends to be that the stores that are doing really well, their gross revenues are being driven by like the Tito's and, and Jack Daniels, Brown Foreman's of the world. Now you might look at Brown Foreman and go, well, then I would imagine they'd be doing very, very well. Well, because on-premise, and we refer to things as on-premise and off-premise, off-premise being a retail brick-and-mortar store, on-premise being your bar and your restaurant. So even though Richie's going to the the local bar and getting you know a couple of to-go drinks, people are still not there drinking, and their business is down. And so the on-premise is such a big part of these companies' business that even with – off-premise sales up 30%, they're still down 20%, you know, in gross revenue. So they're getting smoked. And then the future prospects, it's not a quick, at this point, it's not a quick turnaround because it's lasted so long that a lot of these restaurants are shutting down. They're not coming back. And so the lay of the land going forward, it's like people are still unsure what happens. Um, So off-premise really good and there's even a cultural shift that people start bandying around these ideas that from a cultural shift that bars and restaurants will never be the same again there's far more that's going to go home go on at home or uh there's a great article i read about uh stoop culture and porch culture coming back oh yeah i'm on the stoop all the time now yeah, and, and, and that's what people do is they come out there and they drink and they and they uh, you know have their social hour with their neighbors and they do that type of thing as opposed to the you know pub at the corner. You can see this in the UK. The pubs in the UK have slowly been going away over the years. As iconic as they are, they've been getting bought up by larger conglomerates, and then the conglomerates get clobbered by you know COVID, and it's like there's less and less, and so they're less and less the living room of the neighborhood or village. And then you've got the combination of like, you know, the zillennials, you know, on their Robin hood doing their thing on their, um, you know, their, their cell phones and their iPads. They don't need to be out and doing stuff. I mean, you know, listen, my, my teenagers, you know, we, we used to be like when you're getting your driver's license, you know, I was 15 and a half. I had my driver's license. And I was gone. You know, my kid was like, whatever, I'll, I'll get it, whatever. I don't, what do I need it for? I don't need to go anywhere because they're in this whole little like internet world, social media world that they're not as out and running around. So there's a bit of a cultural shift that's happening as well that you got to be aware of. They're also not drinking yet. Well, Boy. Legally, anyway. Legally. <laughs> legally. But, oh, well. drinking, drinking is down. Drinking is down. Is it? And, yeah, it's massively. Oh, yeah. I've, massively. You know what I've noticed in the lockdown with, um, I have three boys and I, I've noticed that, um, well, two at home now and, and one away from he was, but he was home for well, all three were home for a while. That liquor has mysteriously evaporated out of certain bottles of my, and like, you know, I, <laughs> I, like, they've got good taste, Eric. Good taste. So, <laughs> yeah, one last thing for so Dave uh, Reservoir Distillery did something very patriotic in 2020 during the the PPE crisis where there wasn't enough um, uh, protection uh, equipment for uh, people and, and um, you know, things of personal hygiene to fight the, the spread of the virus. And Dave, you may be getting a presidential medal of freedom, you and Jay. For- <laughs> so what, what did reservoir do? Well, I, 
Okay. Um, so, you know, we talked earlier, what, what was my first career out of college? You know, it's chemical and biological warfare stuff, right? Um, so I, I got a pretty decent understanding of epidemiology. So early on in this, I had pretty good visibility as to what this thing was and what it could be. Um, combine that with my brother is an ER doctor. And so frontline stuff and uh, part of the disaster preparedness for the Commonwealth of Virginia. So, um, you know, talking to him, I had a very, very good read of what was going on and um, the uh, coming crisis on PPE. It was readily apparent that nobody was prepared for this. All the stuff that we did in the 90s, um, looking at different scenarios, had essentially been chucked out the window at some point, and the government literally had no plan to respond. As a result, we didn't have any stockpiles of things. So um, where all this PPE was coming from originally? China. And that's where it was starting. <laughs> and so they used it all. And there was none left for us. Um, so, uh, you know, alcohol is the key ingredient in hand sanitizer. And, uh, you know, while there was this massive shortage of this in the United States, um, we figured out very quickly that we could we could start making hand sanitizer. And, um, and then, you know, knowing that this was the case, the... Uh, compliance and legality of us actually doing this because the FDA oversees it and the TTB and all these people was unclear at the time. But what we said was, Hey, listen, there's a huge need for this and we need to start doing it. And so we took what resources we had and we threw it at that problem and got in front of it as quickly as we could and started um, giving away hand sanitizer at a roller door and the lines were stretching around the block for people to get it. And we're like, okay, we got to make more. So we doubled and doubled and doubled. And we went from making like eight gallons a week to 10,000 gallons to 20,000 gallons. And I think by this time we were all said and done, we did about over a hundred thousand gallons of sanitizer and, um, you know, help support all the first responders in the entire Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, even mid Atlantic up and down, we had, you know, UPS, FedEx, Amazon, police, firemen, you know, large cut. You name it, people were coming to us and we were making it as fast as we could and packaging it up and then getting it out. Um, uh, And uh, was an opportunity to help where um, when it was necessary. And it wasn't just us that did this. We just happened to do it on a pretty, able to get behind it and do it on a pretty large scale very quickly. But every distillery was throwing in no matter um, how big of a setup they had, if they could only make, you know, 50 gallons total, great, you know, get it done. And I think, uh, all together, I don't have numbers on, or do we have numbers on what the entire production from the industry was, but across the entire country, all these distilleries kind of jumped in, um, and, uh, and helped out. And, uh, what's that? We gave sip away. Yeah. And well, yeah, yes, Leslie likes to make sure I always remember to point out just how much we gave away, which was about, um, Oh, gee, what do we say? About $60,000 worth of hand sanitizer. We just gave away at the roller door. Did you at least put your website on the, on the bottle? We called it handshine. <laughs> is there, is there any left? Actually, um, we are still giving it away at the roller door, especially right now because um, numbers are going up. And what's fascinating is even though we're not in lockdown right now, and it's something to think about with trading as well, um, 
you know, why are we not in a lockdown now? If you look at when we went into lockdown the first time, it was a lot better than it is now. Mm-hmm. So why are we not totally locked down right now? And that kind of begs the question of, yeah, it's, it's, it's coming, you know, it's, it's happening in New York, um, you know, in a lot of places. And I will say this uh, for everybody that's out there, the masks and social distancing does work really, really well. Use hand sanitizer, wear a mask when you're out. Um, a neat little stat that my brother was able to give me was in the hospitals that he was working in community infection of all diseases in the hospital dropped to nearly zero. Once all the staff were following proper PPP, PPE procedures, Hmm. which means that so long as you got your protective stuff on, you can really, really slow down the spread of this disease. Um, So it's as simple as it is. It does work. Right. Dave, given your pretty unique background, would the market react well to a lockdown? And I think just going back to what Richie says, you know, it's it's nine months ahead in their thinking and, and things like that. The virus has to be controlled, right? I mean, nothing's coming back if this thing keeps spreading. It's just going to be bad, 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 bad. So would the market react well to a lockdown? I I think that this is, you know, Richie and I can hit this back and forth. Um, You know, when you're looking out at uh, markets, you know, quarter, two quarters out, um, those models work pretty well so long as things kind of move along in a normal fashion. Uh, if you have, you know, I, I mean, everybody throws around, oh, it's a black swan. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, not really. There, there's like you inject some amount of risk into a system. It will change what those, you know, one, two, three quarter outlooks are. Um, getting another lockdown in, uh, I think we can all agree that that's bad for the market because you'll have a num- number of businesses that will revert back um, that have gone up. You'll see a resetting of pricing for sure because uh, revenues are just going to totally change again. Dave, can I interrupt one question? So there's, there's, there's two main scenarios, I think. I, I, I think we're going to a lockdown, whether we, whether it's mandated or whether it just naturally happens with, with the virus right now and being out of control. And the big, question, the big factor, though, is we need the federal government to step in, and they got, we need the stimulus money, we need the relief money, and if we get that and that kind of gives us some sort of bridge where businesses could at least stay above, you know, above heads, above water consumers, you know, people's you know, where they, you know, they're, they're the roof over their head, food, yeah. they can just get people through that. Then yes, then maybe we get the handoff to the vaccine and it's not, and I do believe that the mark. So I think with the market right now, and Richie brought up a great point. We've been kissing your ass a bit today, Richie. Um, Richie brought up a great point. Like the first episode, we brought up Tina. And Tina, not the girl down the block, but Tina, there, there is no alternative. Mm-hmm. Which means that right now, if risk-free rates or treasury, treasury bonds, meaning get obligations directly from the, from the, from the federal government, treasury, that I give you my money, and you give my money back in three months plus a, a few dollars, right? That's mm-hmm. risky. As long as that's near zero, and the market continues to believe that either the Fed or a combination of the, the Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve and the, and the federal government are going to bail them out 
by providing support, risk takers will not stop taking risk. Yeah. If the only thing when when you have Tina, when you have when you have risk free rates and close to zero, the only thing that stops this, and that's what happened in March, is a complete and utter meltdown where people say I want my money back. I don't care. I'm not looking at returns right now. I want to know that if I put my money here, it comes back to me. It's a, it doesn't break the buck. It's a dollar. Dollar's a dollar. I'm not taking any risk. And that, we are, we are very far, the market's mentality is very far away from that. I've spoken to very few people that I, that I respect to invest that are really thinking that, you know what, like this could happen again. And the Fed may be out of ammo and maybe Congress can't get their shit together and, and actually provide, uh, you know, a, a meaningful stimulus bill. I, I completely agree with you. And I think that it's uh, one thing that doesn't get said enough is most people like we haven't had a normal operating market since, you know, early 2000s. Yeah. Since stimulus has come in. And, and so what we are all talking about here is how do we operate within the normal that we're living in right now? And that still is something that the Fed is trying to get out of because the Fed has been in a position of artificial support going back to 06, 07, when they started first introducing uh, this type of thing. And then it's just like self-fulfilling prophecy of getting in. And the thing that does get it is um, a hard reset. But good news is, is that um, this is nothing new. And you can go through the history of the markets and you can go back and see all these different pieces and you can understand the cyclical nature and of how it works. And you can throw in the extra added piece of like communication and the Internet and how that's affected markets and how it can prolong things and how it can, you know, also make things quicker. And so if you're if you're a good student of history, you can go back and put all this stuff into perspective. And I do agree with you. It's a hard reset, be it, you know. Um, a, a liquidity event where everybody kind of brings everything back in it, like in the Godfather. Yeah, every once in a while, you have to have a war to clean out all the bad blood, and uh, and that's kind of what the markets are. But um, you know, unfortunately, you go back and you look at some of the big ones. It's typically a pretty big global war conflict or something that actually really resets the markets. Um, Dave, and I hope that's not something we do. <laughs> Yeah. Just to interject, did you, uh, did Reservoir have to stop? Did anyone order Reservoir to stop down during any of this time? No, because, um, essential business. Yeah. With the, with the hand sanitizer business, I had a special letter from the secretary of Homeland security for Virginia that said, you know, these guys are allowed to do whatever the hell it is they want. And I had that laminated and up on the dashboard of my car. <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, the communion was great. It. it was like, ah, zombie apocalypse. There's nobody around. It's cool. <laughs> Not me. But I can pontificate on this stuff. Well, you know how, how I am about the markets. I love yeah. Yeah. And, and figuring it out. So we could go forever. But I know that you guys got a hard stop here. Yeah, well, you got to make, more importantly, you got to make whiskey. Yes, it's yeah. true. It doesn't make itself. No. <laughs> Nor does it drink itself. I was just going to say that too. Thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Um, yeah, tell absolutely. us a little bit about, like, if I wanted to buy some whiskey here in New Jersey, can I get it here? Uh, yes, you can. Um, right now, we are not, quote, distributed in New Jersey, but you can go to Sherry's Wines uh, and they will ship it to you from Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a whole world of laws on how liquor moves around. But uh, if you just go check out our website, 
and uh, we'll direct you right to wherever it is that you need to go. The website's reservoirdistillery.com. Uh, and make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Reservoir Dave if you want to learn all about how the art of whiskey making happens. Risky whiskey, baby. That's right. <laughs> I appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Make sure you have some bourbon from Reservoir oh, Distillery, oh. ReservoirDistillery.com, along with your, your pumpkin pie, your stuffing, your creamed corn. What's a staple at your Thanksgiving, Eric? You know what's not a staple? Fucking turkey. <laughs> you don't do turkey at I'm all? The only, I'm the only guy, I'm the only one in the family, apparently, who likes turkey. So I don't get turkey because everybody else hates it. So <laughs> I'm going to give you something to tell you, a lack of staple. Um, Mom's cranberry sauce has been, a, has, been a, has been a family favorite for years. Um, and we eat a ham, which is, you know. Love it. I don't get what I want, but, you know. <laughs> you know, you could make yourself a turkey, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> get one of those little ones, those little two Yeah, look, get a little rotisserie chicken from the grocery <laughs> store and pretend it's a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, whatever you end up doing, have a happy, safe, and healthy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks so much. We'll see you again next time on Monkey Business.